I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to episode number 530 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell and today my guest is Kyla Zhou. Her new debut novel, The Fraud Squad, is coming out in January. And Kyla's book was inspired by her time working for high society magazines like Tatler and Vogue in Singapore. So we are going to talk about cultural differences, Trader Joe's, and how her book became her antidote for doom scrolling in 2020. I will have links to all of the books we talk about, and I will have some links to how you can read magazines digitally through your library if that is a thing you would like to do. Hello, and thank you to our Patreon community. We are doing a lot of fun things with the Patreon this fall, and I would love to have you join us. One monthly pledge at any amount keeps the show going. Make sure every episode has a transcript from Garlic Knitter. Hi, Garlic Knitter. And make sure that every episode is accessible to everyone. Plus, you get cool, fun things like bonus episodes, exclusive content, and coming very, very soon, I'm working on it now, a Discord server. A special hello to Stephanie and Rachel, who are two of the newest members of the Patreon. If you would like to have a look, go to patreon.com slash smartbitches. This episode is brought to you in part by Forever, publisher of TikTok sensation Archer's Voice by Mia Sheridan. If you like emotional, hopeful romances with complicated, flawed characters and a nice serving of angst on the side, this book is perfect for you. When Brie Prescott arrives in the sleepy lakeside town of Pelion, Maine, she hopes against hope that this is the place where she can finally find the peace she so desperately seeks. On her first day, her life collides with Archer Hale, an isolated man who holds a secret agony of his own, a man no one else sees. Archer's voice is the story of a woman chained to the memory of one horrifying night and the man whose love is the key to her freedom. It is the story of a silent man who lives with an excruciating wound and the woman who helps him find his voice. Readers on TikTok have been exclaiming about Archer's voice for a while now and every day new book talk fans discover this book. Now, I always say that a book that a reader hasn't read is a new book and Archer's voice is a bestseller 10 years after its first publication. 
Discover the book thousands of readers cannot stop talking about. Find your copy of Archer's Voice by Mia Sheridan wherever books are sold. Today's episode is brought to you in part by a new sponsor, Docatot. Calling all fabulous new parents. If you are expecting or you have a newborn or you know someone who does, then listen closely because I am about to change your life. Docatot are the trusted experts in baby comfort and safety. They create functional solutions for feeding, playing, resting, sleeping, lounging, and beyond. You know, all the things that newborns are really good at. And your baby deserves the best of the best. And so do you. My listeners get the best deal they offer. Get 15% off and free shipping with code Sarah at docatot.com. If you are thinking to yourself, what? is a Docatot. Well, hang on, I'm going to tell you. Docatot is known for their best-selling and versatile baby docs. Now, my neighbor has a newborn and she and her husband love Docatot and the nursing maman wedge. My neighbor uses her Docatot for giving her daughter space where they can all chill out on the couch together without the dogs licking her face, which of course the dogs love to do. It's a lovely, safe space just for the baby and it's wonderful for tummy time. Plus, added bonus, the cover is removable and washable. My neighbor loves this part. A lot of similar products are spot clean only, but the cover for Docatot is completely removable and you can wash it whenever you need to, which is kind of important because babies are messy. Plus, you get to say, this tot is docked. Docatot is a wonderful gift for anyone you know who is expecting or has a new baby. And babies, parents, and gift givers, this is the best brand you can buy for the precious child you love most. Get 15% off at docatot.com with code Sarah. That's 15% off with code Sarah at docatot.com. Parenting is hard, but Docatot makes it easier. All right, let's do this thing. On with my conversation with Kyla Show. Hi, everyone. I'm Kyla. I am a native Singaporean, but I moved to California a few years ago for college. And now I work at a tech company in Silicon Valley in California. My debut novel, The Fraud Squad, comes out from Penguin Random House, Berkeley in January 2023. And it was inspired by my experience working at high society magazines in Singapore, like Vogue, Harper's Bazaar and Tetler. Okay, that's very cool. I imagine that the culture between California and Singapore is a little different from each other. Yes. <laughs> what were some of the first things you noticed when you moved to California? You were like, wow, because California is weird even to other parts of America. Like California is its own thing. Yeah. Wait, are you based in California? No, I am based in Maryland. I'm outside of D.C. But a good friend of mine moved to L.A. and we talk a lot about how L.A. is so very different from the East Coast and how parts of California are their own, like their own unique culture. So I imagine Singapore to California is a big old thing. Yeah, that's so true. I was actually just in L.A. for Memorial Day weekend and L.A. is also very different from the Bay Area where Silicon Valley is. yes. I think the first thing that struck me when I moved to California was how extroverted people were. Yes, I think Americans are so extroverted. Yeah, I think Singapore is a bit more like New York, where everyone just kind of keeps to themselves and everyone's really focused on getting to where they have to be. And if they're in their way, they are like not afraid of making it known to you that they have somewhere to be and that you're in their way. And then I come here, and then I remember the first time I'm. I went to Trader Joe's and then the cashier struck up an entire conversation with me. And I was in that line for five minutes and I heard all about his grandmother and his and what he had for lunch the day before. And I was like, wait, why is this happening? Like, I just want to get my groceries. But now, like, I kind of appreciate it. I think people are super nice. 
in fact, the first summer after my freshman year of college, I went back home and I think I was just so influenced by the culture here that I started smiling at people on the subway and I started like saying hi and people looked at me as though I was weird. And I was like, okay, I get it. <laughs> so yeah. I also think that that's an element of Trader Joe's culture because Trader Joe's yeah. cashiers, they want to talk to you. They want to tell you their life story. Yeah, that that's true. That's what I've heard from my American friends as well. But I think for sure, just like across the board, on average, Americans tend to be a little bit more outgoing, a yes. little bit more willing to talk to strangers. So yeah, but one thing I'm still trying to like get a grasp of, even after four to five years, is when people ask you like, hey, what's up? Like, do they actually want an answer? Because if you say they say, hey, what's up? It's just like an extended way of saying, hey. And I don't know if they want a response. So like, I always see where I put on the spot when that happens. And that happens. <laughs> My general response to, hey, what's up, is nothing. What's up with you? Okay. Just toss yeah, it right so back. Now, yeah, that's what I do now. But then one of my friends was like, you know what I want to ask you? I actually want to hear like a legit response, right? Oh. I don't want to just hear that you're fine. And I was like, oh, okay. That wasn't my experience with most people, but sure. That's a good friend though. Like I'm honestly asking. I think a lot of the times the default is, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? It's just part of the extended on-ramp to a conversation. But yeah. if your friend is like, no, I actually want to know, that's a really good friend. That is, yeah. I agree with you. I have read a bunch of different conversations online about American culture and different cultures in different parts of the world. And Americans are generally very friendly um, and very extroverted. American mm -hmm. culture is a very extroverted and loud culture. Americans are very loud. And I know that one thing I found really interesting was that there are, so in some cultures, especially in some English, former English speaking, former colonies that are English speaking, that's what I wanted to say. The theory is the tall poppy gets the cut. If you stand out too much, you get cut back. But in America, it's like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. We are the ones mm -hmm. who like, you have to stand out. It's okay to stand out. So there's yeah. this really interesting tension among different former colonies of the UK where some of us are like, we're extra. It's like a whole country of theater children. And then some of us are like, no, we do not stand out. We do not, we do not do that. We must all be the same. And it's fascinating to watch the, the cultural differences show up in little areas, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, um, I studied psychology in college and one of the sections was cultural psychology. Ooh. And they saw that, like, for instance, in Asia, like people tend to prefer when the political leaders didn't smile showing their teeth. So they prefer if like the presidents and stuff were smiling, like closed lip smiles. Whereas in America, people like seeing, you know, Obama showing all his teeth, just like oh, beaming yeah. out the people and just that level of like brightness to it. It's pretty different. So congratulations on your book, The Fraud Squad. Tell me everything. Like if you just want to start at chapter one, that's fine. Just like tell me everything about this book. This sounds so cool. Yeah. So the book is about, well, the book is set entirely in Singapore. And it features an entirely Southeast Asian cast of characters. And I started, well, I think it came from a, like me wanting to see more Asian representation books. And this actually happened because I started writing this the summer of 2020. So after my junior year in college, and that was during the pandemic. So it was like June 2020 and my family was back in Singapore, but I had to stay in California because my internship required it. I couldn't work remotely from out of the country. And so I was living alone and that was also when everyone was still social distancing. And so I wasn't seeing any friends at all. And I was just like in this like tiny um, apartment in California. And I was like, wow, okay. So this is just kind of like lonely and depressing. Yeah. And then as I always do, I tend to books for comfort. 
But that was also a time when like anti-Asian racism was really rising across the United States. That was still back when like Trump was president. And there was just like a lot of um, anti-Asian rhetoric happening on social media. And yeah. I found myself doing doom scrolling a lot. And I also got frustrated that all of the books I was reading, because I like reading women's fiction. I like reading chick lit. But a lot of the books in this genre that I love reading, I just began to realize that they didn't feature like Asian protagonists. And I was very homesick. I miss my family a lot. I wanted to see like, um, you know, like Southeast Asian protagonists whom I could identify with and relate to. And then I couldn't really find it in any of the books I was reading except maybe Crazy Rich Asians. And I'm sure these books do exist, but I just wasn't like really learning about them. They weren't coming my way, so to speak. And so I decided to write my own. And from the very beginning, I know I wanted it to be in Singapore. It was kind of like a way of just getting past my own homesickness and feeling connected to like the people back home, even though I was across the country at a time. And I tensed this book. So for those <laughs> who so don't know what tensed is, yeah, I think it means you're writing by the seat of your pants, the fly of your pants or something like that. Yep. So it basically meant that I had no outline. I didn't really know what I was writing um, at a point. I just kind of came up with the story as I wrote. And right. as a result, the first draft was like extremely messy, full of plot holes. I really dug the grave for myself and I had to dig myself out of it. So the first draft took three months. I finished it right as my senior year started. And then I was writing, I was doing the revisions for most of senior year. And yeah, oh, I just tried to never really mention what my book was about. Okay, so my book is set in Singapore's high society, but it's not a high society book. It's actually about a woman, a working class woman from a very ordinary, perhaps even low income background. And her dream job is to work at a high society magazine. So think Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and so on, like the really glossy, stylish magazines you would see. And she realizes that like the best way to just, you know, get onto the radar of the people who work at a magazine is to be a socialite, to impress them and to make them think that she knows that she can talk about high society because she's a part of it. And so she enlists the help of two friends to help her infiltrate high society and yeah, like shenanigans happen. And the whole time she's just terrified of being exposed, especially because there is this gossip columnist who's anonymous and the gossip columnist is always on a prowl for dirt and she's just terrified of being found out. And uh, yeah, and I think I really like how this book ends. I, like that, and that ending kind of just like came to me, but from the very get-go, I knew I didn't want to change it. Even though as I was like working on it and people were, like some of my friends were reading it, everyone was like, oh, you should probably want to change this because otherwise no like agent or editor will be interested. But I'm glad I stuck to it. And I'm glad that my publishing team supports it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Thank you. So you were basically writing yourself the book you wanted to read. Yes. And I wanted it to be really fun, really glamorous, just like not really like what was happening in the world at that time. Yeah. And it, it's it's always interesting to sort of have that fantasy of wealth and access and society. It's, it's all, um, sometimes it's a very big comfort read to read about things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, for sure. I think it's something you can escape into because it is so different from most people's lives that I think everyone kind of just wants like an insight take into what it is like. Yeah, for sure. I think that's why people are fascinated with shows like Inventing Anna or like Gossip Girl or like The Devil Wears Prada because it is just so outrageous but there's always that like glimmer of truth to it that yeah, these people like 
you know, maybe their aspirations are different from what I want, but a lot of it is kind of rooted in universal desires. Like everyone wants to be in a better place than where they are, than where they are now. Everyone kind of looks to other people. Like everyone compares themselves to people who are maybe of like a different class, like a different status. So I think it's very universal. Oh, absolutely. And there's so much, like you said earlier, doom scrolling. There's so much social media that invites you to compare yourself negatively to someone else. And you know that you're looking at the highest gloss perfected version of that person. It is not actual behind the scenes. It is very much uh, an image that isn't like that is not how they are all day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also applies to being an author as well. I mean, when I first joined the Twitter writing community, like I think Twitter, like all social media platforms, is kind of a highlight spiel. People always post yeah. about like heavy publishing stuff, like, oh, I got a book deal, my cover's coming out, my book's on the New York Times bestsellers list, and so on and so forth. But the more authors I got to know and the more we started talking, I realized that like even the most like seemingly successful authors with like seven figure deals and movie deals and so on and so forth, like everyone has their own insecurities. Everyone is afraid of not meeting some benchmark that was set for them or that they set for themselves. Yeah, and I think that just helped me realize that, yeah, like like what you see on Twitter really does not reflect what happens behind the scenes of being an author. No, no, it's a lot of pajamas and sometimes there's crying. (laughs) Oh, yeah, a lot of crying. (laughs) So I am super curious about your background in luxury magazines. How did you get started in that industry and what did you write about? I'm familiar with some of the more product focused ones. I used to work for, yeah. a, for a billionaire who was a, a CEO. And so he would get like the Rob Report, which was very focused on mm-hmm. like products. And there were a lot of luxury travel magazines that came through the office. But the ones you worked out with are slightly different. How did you get started and what did you write about? Yeah, so I actually started working in my first magazine when I was 16. And As that was you do. Bizarre. 16? Yeah. Yeah, it was so bizarre because I remember my very first article was about like how to prepare for a luxury wedding. And I was 16. And I've never like had a boyfriend. I've never been kids. And I was writing about weddings. And I remember telling my parents about it. And my mom was like, I wonder how the readers would react. And the first <laughs> telling them what they should do is like this teenage girl like who doesn't who has no idea what she's writing about. And I was telling people like, oh, here are the best places to travel to you for your wedding. Here's how you should do your honeymoon. Here's what you should buy for like um, your kids, you know, when you have kids. And I was like, I have no idea what's going on. And I think in hindsight, I really do appreciate the editors at Harper's Bazaar Singapore for like taking a chance on me. I'm not sure if they really knew my, I mean, I definitely told them my age, but I'm not sure if it like really registered on your radar. So yeah. Well, clearly you had some strong writing skills at 16 if they were like, yeah, do this assignment on weddings. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm grateful. I think that's like a lucky break. And with that magazine on my resume, it made it easier to get like um, internships down the road. Yeah. Did you have to do this work in person or was this like, did they not see you? This was in person. Oh, wow. So they knew you were young. I think think just like looking back, I was like, how did they not realize it? Because I was just dressed like so unstylishly and I remember <laughs> I was talking about One Direction and I was like why Kyla why would you talk about One Direction to this office of like cool fashionable people why wouldn't you talk about One Direction at that period of time that was a big thing to talk about makes sense to yeah me. that is true that's true so what other things did you write about when you started at Harper's Bazaar and then moved on to Tatler what are some of the things that you would continually write about? Obviously weddings and obviously honeymoon destinations and luxury yeah. travel, but what other things did you cover? 
I kind of covered a lot of different things. I was writing about fashion. I wrote the um, I was writing about lifestyle. So those were my two main topics. I also wrote about jewelry, like luxury jewels and so on. I wrote one for Cartier and I still really like that article actually. Um, and what else? And sometimes I get to pitch my own articles as well. Like for instance, when I was at Vogue last year, last year, um, and I don't write about beauty. I don't like use makeup. So I had no idea what to really write about. But then on Instagram, I saw this like um, beauty influencer and she's famous because she has monoliths like me and she does makeup specifically focused on like monoliths. And I just thought, wow, that was so cool. I really wish I saw this when I was younger and I wouldn't have to feel ashamed about not having double eyelids. So I like pitched this to the beauty editor. And I was like, what if I interviewed her? And I- That's so cool. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So do you do you still, if you have to put on eye makeup, which is not a thing I do very often either, um, do you do you use her techniques or did you learn something from the interview? Okay, I still don't use eye makeup. I think it terrifies me. I don't like things like poking me in my eyes. I understand this completely. Yeah, it took me a few years to master the technique of like putting in my contact lenses and I still (laughs) can't do it in a hurry. Like I need a mirror. I need to be like poking around my eye for a good like a couple of minutes or so. So I might kind of sting away from eye makeup. But I love looking at her photos. Like I love it. That is really cool. That is really, really cool. Especially because, I mean, I know a lot of people, A, learned how to apply makeup from YouTube and Instagram, but also how to apply makeup when the default of what makeup promotes is a very specific white focused standard. And there are lots of variations in skin tone and eye shape that aren't accounted for in put the makeup here, put the makeup there. Like that doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching um, like white YouTubers when I was younger and also Michelle Fan. She's like this Asian YouTuber, but she has like really um, big double eyelid eyes that I don't have yeah. and they would always say like oh you want to put this into your crease and I remember just looking at myself in the mirror and being like where is my crease like this is just like a flat canvas <laughs> so, yeah. I don't have a crease so I can't do this yeah, yeah I have I, I have very deep set eyes and I also wear glasses so I hired somebody to teach me how to do makeup for a wedding in 2019 because I was like I can't do this I cannot yeah. and she actually had me draw my crease on my eye under my brow bone. She's like, you don't have a crease that's going to show up because your glasses are going to be in the way. So you draw your crease up here. So when I do my makeup and I don't put my my glasses on because I'm, you know, busy putting Mm -hmm. stuff on my face. I'm like, I look ridiculous. I should not have fired. I should not have followed her advice. I look, I have lines on my face that look, this is going to look terrible. So then I get my glasses and I put my glasses on and I'm like, oh, 
no, that did work. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> but I had no idea. And that was 2019. I was, you know, I was in my forties before I figured that out. <laughs> so what were some of the things you wrote for with Tatler? Tatler is fascinating. It is such a fascinating concept. It's basically a magazine about society, right? Mm-hmm. So what sorts of things yeah. did you write for Tatler? There was this one thing in Tatler that kind of gave me inspiration for the anonymous gossip columnist in my book. Ooh. And that's because in every issue of Tatler, like at a very back, there's a section where we kind of like write about what we overheard in high society, like at parties and events and stuff, like what are socialites say behind one another's bags or like what sort of beef and drama has there been? And it will all be anonymous. Like we wouldn't name anyone, but that kind of gave me the idea like, what if there's like one single person that's like reporting on all this that's kind of like the invisible eyes and ears of high society. So that gave me the idea. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Tetla is very focused on high society, very focused on like opulent luxury, I would say. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit less more unsubtle than Vogue or Harvest Bazaar in that regard. Um, so yeah, I would write a lot about socialites, but it was also different because when I was at Harvest Bazaar, I was only 16. I wasn't really like trusted to like be sent out on assignments. Yeah. I was at Vogue in 2021. It was still during the pandemic. Everyone was working mostly remotely. There were no events of any sort. And so at Tatler, that was kind of like the one and only time when I was talking to socialites and I was like seeing them up close behind their glossy Instagram photos. And so that was a really eye-opening experience. So did you have to interview people or did you just do Zooms with them? What were you doing? Yeah, I had to interview people. Um, I was also helping out on photo shoots. And I would say that the way people behave on photo shoots is also really eye-opening. Really? So that's why there's this scene in my book where um, the main character, she does this like photo. This is when she's already become recognized as a socialite. And she is engaged by this magazine to do this like important photo shoot. And I did base a lot of my, like, I did base it on like my personal experience as well, like that it inspired the scene and so on. Oh, wow. So do people act like completely over the top entitled and demanding at a photo shoot? Because I would be completely intimidated by having my picture taken. <laughs> yeah, no, I think people were actually really nice. I was intimidated, but no, they were very nice. Like afterwards, we all go out for lunch together. Ooh. They, they weren't like, there were no frills or like pretenses being put on. Like we weren't going to some fancy restaurant. We were going to like this neighborhood food court and just like eating the same $5 noodle yeah. dish. Yeah. That's so cool. So in your, in your, in your work for Tatler, you had to get to know socialites, Singaporean socialites and talk to them about what they were doing. Is, yeah. is the socialite coverage in Singapore different from the way celebrity operates in the States? I would imagine it is because it's a completely different series of class structures, right? Yeah, I would say it's a little bit different. I would say that here, socialites are a lot more like, it, I think it's easier for them to kind of pivot into being influencers and so on, or like Instagram models and as such. But I think in Singapore, it is a little bit harder. Um, I think a lot of them also just like stay with their family businesses and so on. I think there is that kind of expectation, at least in Asian culture, I'm not familiar with it here, that, you know, you kind of work with a family business, you kind of put, your own personal desires and what you want to do on the back burner and put like your family first. Mm-hmm. Are this are the luxury brands that you would cover for these magazines? Um, did you did you get samples? Because I used to joke all the time that I should not have started a romance review blog. I should have started a blog where I reviewed like yachts or jewelry oh. because <laughs> I I like books. 
But I got, yeah. a lot of, I got a lot of books now. So I should have reviewed yachts because then I might have gotten a yacht. I will review your yacht if you send it to me. <laughs> did yeah. you ever get product to review? We did get a lot of samples. And yeah, a lot of um, this actually made its way into my book. Like, for instance, um, like I remember back when I was at Harper's Bazaar, like every once in a while, we would have this like giant shoe sample sale. It would just be like designer shoes being sold for like really, really low prices. Oh my. But swarming all over it. And it just sucked because my feet was the same size as like most other people's feet. And so as an intern, I always had like the last excess. And so there were never really like any shoes left in my size. But we would get tons of makeup samples. Yeah, I think at the end of every internship, I kind of walk home with like this like giant bulging bag of samples. And my like friends and my mom were always pretty happy whenever that happened. And I think the more senior editors would get like like really big products like bags or like clothes and stuff, which obviously as an intern I wouldn't get. Yeah. But yeah, so lots of samples and being invited to really cool events. Like you get to go to the launch event of a clothing store you get. And when I was writing lifestyle for Vogue, I got invited to a lot of testings, some of which were canceled because of the pandemic, but I did get to go for a few and that was really fun. What was that like? That sounds so cool. Like the food tasting? Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah. Like honestly, a little bit intimidating because I would go there and then there would be like a legit reporter from some culinary magazine. (laughs) And we'd be asking all these questions about like, oh, how did you make this like bubbles or like how did you make this mousse? And I would have no idea what's like what terminology is being thrown around. And I would just like eat the food. But you have to eat it in like a really refined manner. You can't just shovel into your mouth. And usually I'll be so hungry that all I want to do is just like 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 just like devour the whole thing. Then they're like, oh no, 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 you have to pour this like 1,000 year old balsamic vinegar on it. You have to let it sit. You have to let it sit for a while. And I was like, oh my God, I just want to eat it. Just give me the bread basket and I'll take all the rolls. Just put it next to you under the table and start eating rolls because you're hungry. (laughs) Yeah. You know how like on um, food websites and every time you post a recipe and before that, there's always that story that most people tend to just scroll past. Yes. That was what it felt like. Like before every dish, there was like this (laughs) high level story being painted of how the chef went to like Milan when he was seven with his grandmother and then at some like roadside little hole in the wall they had this most amazing pasta and he could never stop thinking about it and he wanted to recreate it and I heard it and I was like okay that's very nice. So basically you had to sit through the live edition of a food blog recipe where you had to get the whole story and you couldn't just skip to the eating? (laughs) Oh no! Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Do you remember any memorable food from any of these events? Were there things where you're like, actually, no, that was pretty good. Yeah. I mean, the 1000 year old balsamic vinegar, it was, it was so like, oh, it was really sweet. And it's also really expensive. Like the bottle came in this special like wooden case with this velvet interior. It was like a jewel. And then the person lifted it out with gloves and then the waiter was pouring it in very ceremoniously. And so I put that into my book as well. I always joke that so there's some high-end foods and some high-end restaurants where they're like, this is, you know, thousand-year-old balsamic vinegar over a farm-raised, individually brushed and loved chicken named Sam who's, you know, contributed themselves to your dinner. And I'm like, first of all, this is a chicken breast from Costco. Don't lie to me. And second of all, don't price this like, like I'm eating endangered species. Y'all, it is chicken. 
But at the same time, seeing culinary creativity like that must be really, really cool. Yeah, it totally was. And I and I found what you said about like the food, just like describing it in such an ostentatious way, really funny. Because I thought the same thing. And so in my book, there is one like pretty major plot point was when this other socialite wanted to write a cookbook for like charity and the cookbook is just exactly what you described. Like everything is organic or like artisan or like just the most yeah locally sourced rained on by the most pure oak tree yeah mm-hmm. yeah and then you have to store your caviar in like the special little air-conditioned room and you can only serve it on caviar spoons yeah like things that an average person just would not understand it's such an interesting experience going through a dinner like that too it is it is stressful <laughs> it really is right because i mean yeah like how do you you, like you said, you have to eat in such a very specific manner. And you're like, I am starving. I just want to put the food in my face right now. Yeah. And the portions are like so tiny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I went for food tasting once and then after that, I went to McDonald's and I got a McFlurry. I was like, oh, see, that's what yeah. you have to do. I love how that you go to a tasting and then you go to McDonald's after. Can yeah. Because the portions are tiny. And also, like I said, they talk a lot. And so the portions are like spaced really, like the individual classes are spaced really far apart. So you never get a sensation of like being full. It just feels like you're putting a little bit into your mouth, like every half an hour or so. And it drags on. And then by the end, you're like, yeah, that was like not filling me up. I need something <laughs> crazy to just like chow down. <laughs> so what are you, what are you planning for the launch of your book? And are you are you drawing on any of your magazine experience with your launch as well? Because I clearly the magazine work f- found its way into your book, which must have been very fun. Um, what are yeah. you planning for your book launch? Um, I think it's due like seven months out. So I think at this point, it's kind of up to my marketers and publicists at Berkeley. So I'm not very sure yet. Mm-hmm. But I think it will be cool to kind of come like full circle and to maybe see my books feature in the magazines I used to work at. That would be very cool. Yeah, when the news of my book deal came out and then the Singapore newspapers reported on it, I was still working at Vogue and everyone's like super supportive. I think there were some people who misunderstood it. Like they thought that I wrote the book while I was at Vogue and I was writing it about the people at Vogue. And I was like, oh my gosh, no way. There's no way I could have written a book and sold it and got an agent in two months. Like it's such like a long process. There are a lot of people who don't understand how long the book industry takes, right? Yeah, they really don't. Oh, yeah. They think a book just happens. You sell it. The, uh, a big truck of money backs up to your front door and just unloads the the cash. That happens. And then the book is out yeah. like a week later and it's in every store. And it's like, no, it takes forever. <laughs> yeah, people don't understand when I tell them that it's going to take two years to come out. They're like, but you're already done with the book. Like, yep. what else is there? Many it's things. It's always interesting explaining to like non-writing, non-publishing friends how the whole process works. Yeah. I, I say to a lot of people, and I've said this several times, you know, the book that you're reading right now was somebody's idea 18 months to two years ago or more. Like, mm-hmm. And, you know, well, why didn't this feature in this book? I'm like, well, because it hadn't happened yet when that person was writing it. Is the pandemic in your book? Because I'm curious about how people who are writing during the pandemic, is it finding its way into the book? Is there COVID in this book? Or is this a book where we're escaping from all of that and it hasn't, it's not happening? Yeah, definitely like a complete escape, pure escapist fashion. Um, what I really wanted was to like 
to write about people and to write about like social interactions and stuff because that's what kind of what high society is based on right a lot of socializing a lot of networking it's in the name um, so i love like my favorite scenes to write were always those like big events where different people come together and then there's like this underlying tension and everyone has their own agenda and that can only really happen when everyone's in a room together and everyone just like looks really nice on the surface, exchanging niceties. But, you know, you kind of know deep down that everyone's got like their own little ulterior motive. Yep. And you're right. Some of that stuff can only happen when everyone's in the same room together. You can't have a a, a, a five-star high fashion gala on Zoom. Yeah, exactly. You can't really have that tension, you know, like being exchanged over text messages. It's just not the same. No, it's not the same. And people are not necessarily going to, people are not necessarily going to be the same online as they would in a, in person at a gala. And especially when Mm -hmm. you were, when you were saying that the tension is part of being there everything that they're wearing is part of the dialogue too, right? And it's not just what they say, but it's the dress and the jewels and the purse and who's wearing what and what color they're wearing. All of that is part of the conversation too, right? Yeah, for sure. I do think fashion plays a very significant role in my book. I think more people are beginning to see that because like, for instance, with all the different celebrity court cases going on right now and all the major media outlets are like, bisecting and trying to decipher what their clothes mean and are they trying to convey a message and like you said this just doesn't happen like over zoom like you know i'm in my sweatpants what does that say nothing except that i'm at home yep oh yeah if i have to do like an event online i have a jacket that i put on and i will do my makeup but like i'll be in jammies this week my husband had a a meeting which he did in my office because it's quieter and yeah. he was wearing a suit and a suit jacket and a shirt and a tie and some sweatpants and slippers. <laughs> and he came downstairs oh, and like, you yeah. look amazing, so dude. Beautiful. Yeah, I actually read somewhere that one of the most popular like party teams now is Zoom fashion. <laughs> and people encourage to show up in like really outrageous, like like from the get up, they look so polished and put together. <laughs> and then on the bottom, it's just like boxes or like sweatpants. All right. I want to go to one of those parties. That sounds really fun. <laughs> I love it. So what books are you reading right now that you would like to tell people about? Okay. Um... So I just finished Portrait of a Tea by Grace Lee. Ooh. And I actually attended a book launch because it's kind of near where I stay. And that was really fun because I got to meet Grace in person for the first time. I got to meet a lot of authors in person for the first time. And this book is also very close to my heart because it is a it was pitched as like being in the vein of Ocean's Eleven mm-hmm. because five Asian Americans, they break into art museums to stole back art that was looted from China. Oh. But I, what I really loved about the book was how it explored the complicated relationship that every individual had with their own like cultural background and being part of the Asian diaspora. Mm. And it's also different, but at the same time, it kind of overlaps. And so I really like that. Um, another book that I'm reading now is Arsenic and Adobo by another Berkeley author, Mia. And this is like a cozy mystery. And the uh, um, main character is Filipino. And there's like so much amazing food descriptions. Like I cannot read it when I'm hungry because it sounds so good. Oh, yeah. I read Arsenic and Adobo. There is a lot of food in that book. Yeah, I was like looking up all of them and I was like, oh my gosh. And I just think it's amazing that it features ube because I don't think ube is like a very popular ingredient of flavor here, at least not no. in my experience. 
So I try to tell my friends about it and they're like, what is it? I'm like, well, it's like purple. Yeah. And they're like, you put that in dessert. I'm like, it's amazing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love, there are some uh, bakers that I see making ube breads because it makes the bread this gorgeous purple, Ah. right? I love that. I mean, who doesn't want to eat purple food, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like pretty and it tastes good. I think it's very underrated. I completely agree. (laughs) So where can people find you on the internet? Okay, so I am on Twitter. My handle is Kylazing Around, like (laughs) K-Y-L-A, Lazing Around. I was really proud of it when I came up with it. But, you know, now I think about it, it might not have been like super official or anything, but it's okay. It's Twitter. So when I, came up with it, I didn't think any of this would happen. Um, I am also on Instagram. The, that handle is more like polished. That is Kyla J. Chow. J is my middle initial. Um, yeah. And I also have a website, www.kylachow.com. And my newsletter is on deck. Fabulous. Thank you so very much for doing this interview. It has been a delight and congratulations again. I had so much fun. Like I've done a few interviews before, but this was really, really fun. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to Kyla for hanging out with me. Her book is out in January. You can pre-order it or request it from your library. And of course, I will have links in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. I will also link to all of the books we discussed and I'll have a link for how you can read magazines like Tatler through your library, which I do often because it's really, really fun. As always, I end each episode with an absolutely dreadful joke. This joke comes from Reddit. It was sent to me by my husband, who also told my son, who just looked at him blankly. So you know that if he just gets a blank teenage stare, this is high quality bad joke, right? What's the difference between a vegan and a computer programmer? Give up? What's the difference between a vegan and a computer programmer? One is disgusted by a rack of lamb, and the other is disgusted by a lack of ram. (laughs) Blank teenage stare. (laughs) This comes from omelette au fromage on on lack of ram. (laughs) On behalf of everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend, and we will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcasting Network. You can find outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcast.